Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Is This Music, a podcast about the mysteries of musical taste, why we love the music we love and hate what we hate. My name is Malcolm Fraser. To be part of a music scene or a music community, what a feeling that is. And it's a feeling that was captured very beautifully by Mariana Timoney. She's a writer freelance music journalist, an editor with Bandcamp Daily, and the author of the Weird Girls newsletter, which is where I came across uh, a very moving and powerful piece about the joys and the pains of being part of a music scene. I knew that it would be great to talk to her for this podcast. She has a lot of very strong opinions. I felt at times that I was... uh, talking to a personification of my teenage punk conscience. Um, And the conversation has really stayed with me. Uh, I hope you enjoy listening to it. So, Mariana Timoney, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, It's nice to to talk to you. Uh, We don't know each other at all, but I'm a fan uh, of your writing. You have... uh, you write for a bunch of publications and you also have the weird girls newsletter an occasional missive where you shout out artists that you like and also just drop truth bombs about uh about the music world yeah and um you also work for bandcamp is that right i do i'm a senior editor for the editorial publication of bandcamp the bandcamp daily Okay, so that's sort of like what appears on their homepage, the articles and and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a cool thing. I you know, I'm a big fan of uh of Bandcamp. I use it both as a listener and also like to to upload my own music and stuff. Um and uh I'm kind of fascinated by it too because it's um I mean, I didn't know for the longest time that the Bandcamp even published uh, articles is that relatively recent uh well it was uh founded or we started publication in 2016 um so it's not like super recent but in terms of like music publications yeah it's one of the newer ones um but i feel that it's been in the last two years that the daily has really um taken off and people have become more aware of us as something that's distinct from Bandcamp, the platform. I mean, we're, we are the same company, but um, we are doing something that's different from offering the features that is done, you know, with Bandcamp.com. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I think that one of the things that's so interesting about Bandcamp, like I remember like some years ago, there was sort of this question like, okay, MySpace is done, like, where should you upload your music now? And it was kind of like, people sort of had this thing like Bandcamp or SoundCloud. And it became clear pretty quickly that they served kind of different functions. Um, But there's also kind of like a, there's sort of a philosophy behind Bandcamp in a way, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, our entire philosophy is artists first, you know, as our CEO, um, has said in in interviews you know we only make money if the artist makes a lot more money yeah true and um it's also like it all it almost um in the same way that in the uh in a previous era the, the sort of indie label world was in contrast to the major label world a band camp kind of stands in contrast to Spotify and the other big streamers to my mind. Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah. We hope to, um, definitely. And one thing that's, that's just such a dream about working for Bandcamp daily as a music journalist is because we take no advertising. Um, we are essentially free to cover who and what we want. Um, and it gives us a lot of latitude in terms of, you know, deciding whose record we would like to write about just because we think it's cool. You know, we can get an artist submission and, and talk about it as a team and decide we want to 
to cover it and not have to somehow justify it to a bunch of venture capitalists who don't care about music. Yeah, it's a it's it's a nice way of uh, of looking at it. Um, but do you feel like how could I put this? Um, do you feel that you're a competitor of Spotify or that you just exist on another plane? Um, I think that, and you know, I don't, this is my opinion. Um, I'm not speaking on behalf of the company, but I, I think in general, we don't consider ourselves uh, a competitor to them because we're not a streaming platform. We really, you know, we're a record store. Uh, so our business model is completely different. Um, the way that people use the site is completely different. Um, I'm not going to say we serve a different audience because, you know, we're all serving music lovers, but we, we don't, I wouldn't say that we're competitors, um, to Spotify, except that we're uh -huh. you know, online in the music sort of tech world. But aside from that, um, the similarities are just not there. Yeah. Um, I, I met, and I, I remember at one point someone was sort of complaining that, you know, you, you couldn't, uh, make playlists uh on, on Bandcamp in the same way that you can on spotify and then uh i read an interview with maybe it was the ceo or someone i'm not sure just basically saying that that was like a feature not a bug that there was no plan to uh to incorporate that feature because it, it's not it's just well as you say it's not intended for us as a streaming platform right and in some ways like and again this is my opinion but like maybe playlists aren't like the pinnacle of music consumption you know like maybe there's <laughs> other ways of listening and appreciating music that isn't a having an algorithm figure out what you would like to listen to while you fill out spreadsheets um or you know for you to put together. I mean, you know, I've made mixtapes. I'm not against the idea of, of playlists in general, but I definitely think that sort of the privileging of playlists as like the new way that people consume music is like kind of a psyop by companies that want to serve that to you. Wow. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. I never thought of it before. I mean, to be honest, uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, I guess, platform agnostic is that the term because i use both bandcamp and spotify but um but um you know i i to me uh you know the discoverability is one thing but the ability to make the playlist is a huge um appeal of it because you know from going back to the era of mixtapes and then mix cds and uh mp3 playlists it, it was always just kind of like an amazing way to share um music with people i uh i am interested in your your work with Bandcamp, but um i'm more am interested in uh in your writing um i can't remember how i came across your newsletter but i signed up for it and i feel like uh it, it's just so full of uh things that resonate so much with me um you talk about um the passion you have as a music uh writer and I've found that a lot of um, maybe it's just the you know you know grumpy uh, grumpy old hipsters that I know, but um, a lot of musicians I know kind of have a problem with music critics um, on, on principle, um, and uh, and I always kind of roll my eyes when they when they say those things. Maybe because I've also worked as a critic as well as as an artist but um but when you uh but some of the things you've said about the the about music journalism are like every bit as harsh as as uh as the harshest um critics of criticism earlier today as i was preparing for this interview i was going through some of your newsletters and i started cutting and pasting a few things but then i realized there were so many great passages that i was just basically like cutting and pasting like half of the of of the newsletters but at any rate uh the, the um the, there's one thing you wrote a little while ago you said um we're annoyed this is a quote from you we're annoyed at what we see as pr garbage being passed off as journalism the weird group think amongst music writers that actively suppresses and belittles any dissenting voices the lack of strong critical viewpoints of any kind the manufacturing of popularity the list goes on and i thought wow i mean that's that's a harsh 
point of view um i mean i'm not saying it's untrue at all it rings very true to me but it's more the kind of thing i'm used to hearing from like embittered aging musicians more than like people who actually work in music journalism yeah i mean it's true i'm definitely very critical of the field just because um it is often seen as like one of the lowest form of arts journalism um and there's a reason for that and the reason is because it's it's so close to advertising at its worst you know it is advertising Mm -hmm. um and i just have felt definitely this was a little bit pre-covid you know when when the media hierarchy structures were still in place but there's just so much groupthink among music writers who I just don't feel are in it because they actually love music. It's more because they want to be famous themselves and it's like a cool thing to be associated with. Um, and that's mm. the worst reason to get into it, especially because everyone's complaining about how we don't make any money and this and that. And it's like, well, if you're not making any money, then why are you selling your soul for free just to prop up Oh my God! some garbage that- you know, Lana Del Rey, like that's somebody that doesn't need you to get up there and, and sell her record for her. Um, and the fact that, you know, some, something like that can be taken as an example of music journalism rather than just PR was, was very hurtful to me. Like, and I feel sometimes like I, I take it too seriously, but on the other hand, like I, I love music, um, and I love writing about music and so to see it sort of made a mockery of, it's just really, really painful to me sometimes. Uh, why do you think that this group think uh, exists? Um, gosh, I think it's because music journalists only talk to each other. Um, I think that's one part of it. So they don't have anybody in their circles saying like, actually, that record is bad. Um, I also think that for whatever reason, this kind of like let people enjoy things attitude kind of seeped in to the profession and everything where, um, you know, it's like, well, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But like, I came up in like the nineties and like the indie, indie rock where it was like, there was such a thing as selling out. If somebody made a bad record, you didn't give them a pass because if you give people a pass just over and over and over again, that's how you end up with shitty music and shitty politics and you know meaningless meaningless music uh huh that's that's uh that's a really interesting point i i remember um a, a little while ago um this is i keep saying things were recently and then realizing they were actually like five to ten years ago but i guess that's just you know part of getting old but um a pitchfork was reviewing the new the newest Coldplay album which was like you know a good several records in like past the point where they were super popular and I was kind of like okay like I mean I get that you're trying to seem like we're not hipster snobs we're you know giving everyone uh you know giving 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 this record a a chance to be evaluated even if it's considered really mainstream and pop but I was kind of like "Mm, yeah but like how many great artists could you have given that place to rather than covering something that's already covered by every everyone right and that is not like your review is going to make no difference as to whether or not Coldplay continues to play stadiums yeah yeah um well that's a really interesting uh perspective too um i i was curious and because you this is something that really um struck a chord with me in one of your newsletters um when you sort of like attacked the idea that, uh, as you put it in quotes, selling out no longer exists. And I was, I was really relieved to, uh, to, to see someone say that because I felt like I grew up in, in that same nineties indie, um, sort of world. And, and it's true that it's a bit reductionist, um, to talk about selling out at a certain level, because it's like, how do you define that? And of course, people have to make a living and so on and so forth. But when when I when I started to um, 
absorb this idea that selling out is an obsolete concept, I kind of felt like, oh, have I just like been sold the bill of goods this whole time? Like, do you know what I mean? Like believing in this DIY kind of um, approach, I was like, oh, was I just completely deluded about that? Um, Should I start thinking like a craven capitalist when it comes to my my music and work? Um, And I never really quite managed to 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 pull that off. But um, but anyway, it was just a it was nice to read, I guess, is what I'm what I'm getting at. Um, because I thought, okay, like someone else still believes in that. I appreciate that. There's also a difference between like selling out, you know, I think we can agree that musicians need to eat. And if selling your, your song to, um, a commercial helps you do that because we just live in a capitalist system and you have to make bad choices like that, but there's different levels of selling out and giving everybody sort of carte blanche is sort of serving I mean that's what I always ask myself when when I read a review or even when I'm writing something like who am I serving right now like whose aims are are being filled by me talking about this record or making this deal or or making this compromise and you know oftentimes it's like only the people at the very very top who are making money off people who don't care they're making money off people who do care about music um, by sort of absorbing the cool factor of it uh, and by just saying like well selling out doesn't doesn't exist that sort of negates the possibility that there's any way to be successful without selling out and that's just poison yeah yeah i mean honestly i struggle with that a lot because you know um i mean it's it's certainly true as you said earlier that um there's no point in selling out if um if you're not even getting getting paid for it uh when you see that happen that's truly sad um but it's pretty difficult to 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 make a go of it with no money in this uh in this system that we that we exist in yeah definitely you know with the lack of any at least in the united states for support for for the arts in any way um it's it's truly sad but it's not going to get better if everyone's just like yeah i'll sell my song to mcdonald's who gives a shit yeah it's a it's a it's a tricky thing um i wanted to to come back a bit to something you said earlier because um just out of curiosity because i don't really have a dog in this fight so to speak but um you 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 mentioned lana del rey when you were sort of talking about um you know as an example of somebody who is really mainstream and i was curious about that because um you know i don't know her work that well but i i just the other day sat down and listened to one of her records for the first time because a couple of friends of mine were saying like no no like you know fuck all the haters like just just sit down and listen to the music it's really good and I sort of haven't made up my mind what I think about it, but I was curious why you thought of her right away as an example of, of that kind of thing. Well, I thought of her right away because um, a review that Pitchfork ran of her last record, uh, Norman fucking Rockwell, um, to me is like the epitome of an egregious, overwritten, um, completely pointlessly hyped up review um that is just a disservice to the profession and a disservice even to her as an artist um and that that review for me personally like when i read it was just like well all of this is pointless like if if someone like lana del rey who is a basically a creation i mean she's a persona her music is not that deep you know i mean it can be pleasant or whatever but it's not it's very it's like tumblr it's like kind of like tumblr culture the album and um the review was basically how do you mean well it's a pastiche it's a big pastiche of a lot of different um a lot of different sounds without any sort of center it feels very hollow to me 
it just doesn't feel like self-generated. It feels like a lot of people got together in a boardroom and decided like, this is what, this is what we're going to make, which is fine. But this review was selling her as the next coming of Joni Mitchell as, um, you know, Carol King as it, it was like throw any name in a bag and, and pick it out. Um, and it was, it was just very vexing to me because it was so clearly advertising and uh, it just, it just seemed like that's when I felt like, okay, well, I'm just weird. I'm on the outside because I just don't, I don't see this at all. I don't see how anyone could listen to this record and come to those conclusions. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's always it's always hard to say because I mean, not to pick on Pitchfork too much, but they they always seem like they're um, they're not just talking about the music. In fact, they they rarely uh, seem to talk about the music per se. It's always kind of like seen through the lens of like placing something in a context and always with an eye towards like the status of it. Um, but at any rate one of the pieces you wrote that I really loved um, was about um, music scenes. It came at it from such an unexpected, refreshing perspective because I, I've you know had the good fortune of being part of at least uh, a couple of like really great uh, m- musical communities, let's say. I always kind of like resented or pushed back against like the term music scene because it seemed to me like to have more to do with I don't know like being on the scene trying to be cool knowing all the right people and so on um but you you spoke very movingly about uh what it's like to be part of of a music scene um and I wondered if you could expand a bit on like what motivated you to, to, to write that piece? Sure. Uh, well, I wrote that piece because I, um, I read about the death of, um, Chet J.R. White from that band girls. Um, Mm -hmm. and he was like 41 or something. And I was very moved. Well, not moved. Isn't the right word, but I was very affected, um, by his death. And I've got to sort of thinking about why. And, um, Girls was never my favorite band, but they were part of this whole big sort of California 2010s um, music scene that I was part of. I was in Los Angeles, not the Bay Area, but there was a lot of cross-pollination. So, you know, we knew a lot of the same people, you know, went through the sort of went through the same scenes. And um, as I was sort of thinking about it you know, because there's a lot of speculation as to why, why he died. And I don't think they ever released the reason exactly why, but like, to me, it was like, there's only one reason why, why music people die. And it's because they can't get over what has happened to them. Um, after being part of this, you know, really strong community that just sort of breathes this magic into your life. And then especially when it's over and you hit 40 and all of a sudden you realize like that's never going to happen again and you don't have anything in your life that has taken the place of it. And maybe you're also struggling with addictions or anything else that's sort of left over from living that rock and roll lifestyle. That's a, mm-hmm. a lot of people just kind of expire. Um, and after I read that, I had already been thinking a lot about my experiences in the music scene and what had happened to me after my particular music scene had sort of faded away and what emotionally had happened to me. So that seemed like a really good moment to sort of explore that um, and really talk about why I think that music communities are important. And it's not just sort of the superficial, almost famous or like, you know, sort of our band could be your life sort of aesthetic part of it but really the emotional part of it that people don't really really talk about you know because it's more focused on the sex drugs and rock and roll bit yeah for sure um what what um what is that emotional part of it for you well i mean it really is about finding your tribe you know finding a community especially if like you love music and because music to me is is such a personal art in a way that i i'm just not sure any of the visual arts 
really are because it's something that happens like you can experience it between your own ears you know that's your individual experience but you also share it with so many other people um and when you're in a music scene it takes that experience and just like magnifies it because all of a sudden like all of your friends are they all love the same records that you do and they all love the same bands and everybody knows everybody and you're all united by this love for music and that's a really special thing to get plugged into and when that goes away um it can be really difficult to get over especially if you're somebody that's really in it like your identity becomes becomes really wrapped up in you know i i'm in this band or like i'm i'm this producer or i'm this person within this sort of society of people and then all of a sudden that goes away and if you can't move on from that it can be really devastating yeah well you said it really beautifully in your piece when it is gone what are you left with golden memories a drinking problem and a hole in your soul <laughs> i'm laughing but it was very it's very poignant um, um what do you think causes those scenes to to kind of like peter out or 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 wither away as you said uh i think it's just the cyclical nature of things i mean if you look through all of music history um like the the lifespan of a scene is about five years five six years it's just not sustainable the lifestyle is just so hardcore that it's just not sustainable um the the musical trend wheel spins you know the scene i came out of was like a lot of garage psychedelic rock and that you know stopped being like i knew that scene was was kind of on its way out when everybody started getting synthesizers and calling themselves post-punk bands it was like okay this is this is not what it was but that's just the natural you know order of things um and i think people move you know there's a lot of factors but it's just and also there might just be something kind of ineffable about it like the way that sort of like these little magic hotspots move around, you know, like you had like Olympia and the Pacific Northwest in the nineties was just like this insane place where like all the bands that came out of there were good. And like all this amazing energy was happening. Um, and then it moved, you know, and now it's elsewhere. Like I would like to think California had that for a while. Um, hard to say where it's at now just because of COVID and everything. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's so true. It's, it's hard to say what, what will come next. I mean, I know that, you know, in the people I know, like some people whose band is sort of like their full-time job, you know, there's, they've still been, you know, getting together to, to play and stuff. But a lot of other people have, have of course retreated into our, little bubbles and uh i wonder i mean you know i guess time will tell obviously but there's a part of me like well obviously a lot of people think that when things get safer there's going to be sort of an explosion of creativity and community uh but i wonder you know whether there's a part of us that will will always be kind of scared <laughs> you know in, in the in the early part of of the pandemic i was always sort of fantasizing about like the next time that i went out to a show or something and now i'm thinking like like here in montreal they just announced that they're opening up show venues next week and i was kind of like i'm not ready uh, you know I, I i need to wait a little bit more and see how how things play out yeah i mean i definitely think that diy is going to establish itself a lot faster than you know live nation like we're going to be seeing warehouse shows and and basement stuff and things happening under freeway passes like long before coachella comes back may it never come back but um and i understand the fear but i also think that's because we're old older you know it's like i think the kids who are like 15 now or whatever when the next few years are going to be they're not going to have that that fear. Um, I just hope that this helps. Not that there's anything wrong with, you know, the bedroom producer making stuff on their laptop, but I just love bands. I think that bands are such a special expression of uh, human chemistry and like functioning relationships. And uh, it would be amazing to see, you know, bands come back 
in a, in a big way because everyone's just so excited to be together again. Yeah, it's 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 definitely wonderful to think about. So your article about music scenes uh, talks about your time in Los Angeles. Where where are you based now? Um, I live in Brooklyn. Um, I'm in Los Angeles right now, actually, because um, I'm skipping the winter. But uh, yeah, I moved. I was in Los Angeles. I'm from L.A. I moved from there in 2016 mm-hmm. to the Bay Area. And then I moved to Brooklyn in 2019. Okay. And was that for for work or for a change of pace? Yeah, I mean, sort of both. Um I was working in um, at Bandcamp when I lived in um, the East Bay, but all editorial is in New York, so I wanted to move out there um, and be with be with my team. And also, I was just kind of bummed. I was just sort of depressed being in in the Bay Area and being in California, um, and I couldn't really put my finger on it. And one thing writing the piece definitely helped me articulate was one reason I was so unhappy is because I missed my scene you know I missed my friends and I wasn't able to duplicate it I mean there were good bands in the East Bay and you know I went to venues and had friends but it just it wasn't the same and uh, I just had a very difficult time with that so when the opportunity came to move to New York I took it mm-hmm. there's another piece that you wrote which was about um this sort of scandal around the burger records label and this is a, a bit more delicate to talk about i guess but um you you said you know and, and tell me if i'm if i'm misinterpreting this but there was this you know for those unfamiliar there was a sort of like me too adjacent kind of scandal which kind of uh caused a domino effect of like basically you know, wiping out the legacy of this record label. And um, it, it seemed to me like you were saying, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that, that there may have been like an overreaction. I mean, would, is that fair to say that that was your, your take? Um, yeah, I do think like, again, I, uh, it is very delicate because I want to make very clear that it's not that I didn't believe the women who said things and I definitely even as someone who was in that scene can tell you there was there there was plenty of stuff that we saw that a lot of us saw that was just like that doesn't seem right even if you never saw anything specifically like super egregious but definitely coming from the music journalism community I thought there was a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of overreaction to what was coming out in a way that, you know, a lot of good people went down with that ship. Um, and we can, you know, argue mm-hmm. about whether or not it was deserved, but um, it was, it just seems a little, it's, it, it was just very unprecedented to see an entire music scene that really wasn't that different, you know, from music scenes that have existed throughout time um, in terms of what was allowed to occur just be wiped from existence yeah yeah it's true i mean you know i i you talked about like the entire catalog of the label being pulled off of of streaming services for instance and i I don't know the situation at all or anybody involved but it seemed to me like that's kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater in a way because presumably there were some people affected by that who weren't involved in or guilty of whatever offenses happened yeah i mean and that was that was part of it also i think that there was just like a lot of people felt very entitled because burger was kind of interesting as a label i mean maybe interesting isn't the right word but a lot of bands put out tapes through burger because i mean say what you want about about that label we would not be having the cassette revival that we're having right now without them i mean they really kicked it off and they really made it like accessible for everyone to be like well i'm gonna have a tape label now i mean other people were doing it but they were the ones that really popularized it and really made it they were very revolutionary in that sense um so a lot of bands put out tapes on burger without ever being a quote-unquote burger band and when the entire sort of meltdown was happening a lot of people were just being forced to make a statement 
about, you know, distancing <clears throat> themselves from the label, even though maybe they had had one release one time. And that seemed a little over the top to me and a little unfocused uh, and, and just a little unfair. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a very tricky thing to talk about. Um, but I feel like, you know, I, I hope that we can, you know, move into um, like a stage where instead of kind of like punishing and exiling people who have done wrong things, we could like try to fix the problems uh, instead of like just by kind of shutting certain people or, or things out, hoping that the the that that makes the problem go away. Right. Not taking, forcing other people to take accountability. You know, all these music journalists out there saying, well, I always knew that they were creeps. Like, well, did you? Because you were covering their records. You know, you were writing about Ariel Pink. Um, you were doing all these things. I, and, and if you always knew, then why are you saying that? That, that stuff sort of bothered me. Yeah. Well, it's always like kind of, it's convenient to, absolve yourself from what from uh from whatever was going on well anyway um i wanted to ask you about one other uh one other quote and and um perhaps this is related to the, the things we've talked about perhaps not but there was a very like um a, a, again kind of poignant and stark a statement you made in one of the newsletters where you said this is the quote, maybe basing my self-worth around the supposed hipness of of my surroundings is partially what set me on the road to madness in the first place. It's a very, very compelling thing to say. Uh, can, can you can you tell me a bit more about what was behind that? Sure. Um, well, that newsletter, that one is about um, the Halloween night I spent in Huntington, West Virginia, where I ended up uh, going because I... Uh, heard it in a John Denver song. This is a whole like long story, but when I was just like super sort of depressed and lost, I just ended up hearing uh, somebody talk about, you know, West Virginia is a place where everybody sings the same song. And that was really what I was missing, you know, because what is a music scene, but a place where everyone sings the same song. So um, I went there and I was able to go because a friend of mine who I knew through my LA music scene lived there and we went to a Halloween show, like a covers show. Um, and like in my previous incarnation, it might have been something that I thought like, I would, this isn't cool. Like, this is just so cheesy and it's so, you know, whatever. I, I'm just, I'm too cool for this kind of stuff. But um, being there and just being like, wait, I'm having a great time. And this is really feeding my soul in a way that I didn't expect. It made me sort of realize that like, looking outside yourself for validation is always going to end badly um, because it's going to stop at some point, you know, you're going to stop getting the validation. And I was sort of realizing that like, that's what maybe was causing me to spin out so much was that I wasn't able to um, sort of find it in myself um, and was instead just being like, well, who am I if I'm not like, the cool girl going to the echo every weekend or like, who am I, if I'm not like, you know, the DJ at, at this show at the DIY venue, um, if my identity isn't that, what is it? Um, and it's been yeah. kind of a long road trying to come back from that, but definitely doing stuff like going to West Virginia and seeing some awesome bands on a Halloween night was, was part of the journey. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, it, I I liked how um, you know you you talk about the the joy of being part of a music scene, but also the the dark sides as well. Um, I have to say though that somehow I feel like someone listening to this might get the wrong impression of of your newsletter because I've been quoting back to you these things that are like either kind of melancholy or kind of kind of angry. And it, but one of the things I like the most about uh, your newsletter and your articles. Um, is just the joy that it reflects um, and uh, and the passion that you have about all the music you love. Oh, thank you. And there's another there's another great quote um, that I that I dug up where you say, "It seems to me that records you listen to obsessively oftentimes find a way of seeping into your life 
not only coloring your perception of events, but even shaping them in some ways. It's as if through the love of them, you begin to live them out too. Um, I, I wondered if you, I mean, off the top of your head, can you think of any records or artists that, that made you feel that deeply? Oh, sure. Um, definitely La Luz, like Shana Cleveland's Night of the Worm Moon um, will always sort of be part of, of my life. Shana Cleveland in general, her band La Luz is one of my favorites. I think she's such a genius and so, so underrated. Um, of course, Mary Timoney's Mountains has been a constant companion since I was 17. Um yeah, you wrote a, wrote a really, really interesting article about that for the Washington Post, I think, recently. Yes. I had a Helium record that I really that I really enjoyed back in the 90s, but I wasn't familiar with this um with this Mary Timoney record and I have to also, I mean, you say this in the article, but uh oddly enough, you are not related to Mary Timoney. No, oh, I am not. No. Even though your names are uh, are very similar. Yes. I think that somehow when I came across your newsletter, I assumed that you were related to her, but not so. No. Yeah, but anyway, it's a really interesting article because you you essentially uh, make the argument that it was like ahead of its time. Uh, Yeah, I definitely think Mountains was very much ahead of its time in terms of the scope of it, um, how emotionally uh, really honest and and deep it was, um, just sort of the sounds. Um, and it is a very difficult record. Like it's one of those records where I listen to it now with, you know, 20 years later, having heard tons more music and been through a lot more stuff. And I'm still quite, uh, blown away by how, how many risks she's sort of taking on it. Um, and also sort of proud of my 17 year old self for listening to that record and being like, yes, this is good. Like, I will like this because it's a record that I feel that would have turned a lot of people off just because it was so strange, you know, sort of medieval and and proggy in a way that was just not, not very hip in the early 2000s indie scene. Yeah, I, I remember reading this uh, quote from Paul Westerberg where he said, like, being ahead of your time sucks. <laughs> you know, like, it, it only, uh, it's only romantic in retrospect. At the time, it's just like, n- nobody nobody gets what you're doing. Yeah, and, you know, makes you feel bad for it. Um, that was something that I talked about with her in the, the article, was that, you know, because she got a terrible review from Pitchfork and, and just she just felt very shamed. Um, and that's, that's difficult. You know, nobody wants to feel mocked or shamed and it's, it's hard to, yeah, I would agree with Paul Westerberg. It sucks. Like in retrospect, you could be like, see, I told you so, but like, you got to wait 20 years to be able to say that. Yeah. Yeah. It might be cold comfort at that point. Right. Okay. Glad everybody caught up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so um so la luz mary timoney what, what can, can you think of any other um yeah i mean slater kinney was a was a huge was a huge band for me as a teenager and i definitely think really shaped a lot of my sort of ideas and sort of politics i mean they're kind of sellouts now but they weren't for a long time um and what 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 makes you say that oh well i mean they kind of just sort of went Hollywood, um, which they're totally entitled to do on their last record. It's sort of moving away from from being like this sort of punk band. Um, and what I always really liked about them, it's funny, it's funny to talk about Slater Kinney because there's so much hagiography around that band now that it's easy to forget that in the early 2000s, they were they were kind of weird. I mean, not everybody liked them. They weren't just this like shining beacon of like, amazing female fronted rock music that they're sort of now seen as um and that was very meaningful to me that here was a band that probably did have opportunities to sign to major labels and do other things and and chose not to do it um but now they have chosen to do it (laughs) now later later in life but um you know that's what that's what happens yeah, I I want to uh, I want to um, kind of push back against something just just for the sake of argument because 
I, I feel like I'm hearing a perspective from you that that I haven't that reminds me of you know my old days playing in a punk band and when I would say you know if I was like talking to a promoter on the phone because this is before like the internet even existed or barely um, to try to get a gig and they would ask us to describe uh, our setup and I would say oh we have you know guitar bass drums and a keyboard they would be like a keyboard well like it's like the record the needle scratch like you have a keyboard and I'd have to reassure them that you know we were sufficiently punk even though we had had a keyboard in the band and uh, I'm not uh, accusing you of that mentality but I, I I'm I'm curious like again just for the sake of argument like you you cited earlier like bands changing their sound by picking up keyboards or like Slater Kinney going Hollywood like what is that does that have what, what does that have to do with with music per se or is it just like a um like a semiotic difference well I think that I mean if the music is good that it you know you should all hopefully bands do these make these changes in service of what is going to serve their vision um and music best but some if it just feels like it's being done for marketing purposes that's what gets sort of my my hackles up um and i know that i'm still sort of clinging to the like that's not punk kind of attitude but i think that's just kind of my contrarian nature is that i'm always just like that's not punk this is punk that's not punk <laughs> yeah well it's contrarian but also like I, I don't know i mean i've talked about this before and it's something that's you know, it's one of the the deep reasons for me exploring this whole project is just like the sort of religious nature of, of punk, um, of where it sort of sets out these things that you like what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, so it's like contrarian against the mainstream, maybe, but like then within it, it's it's this very kind of rigid set of rules. Yeah, definitely. Is that fair to say? But I also think that like, Music doesn't, I mean, it's going to make me sound like some bitter old woman, but I definitely think that our music scene was healthier when we were able, when we had rules, when we were able to say like, this is acceptable conduct, this is not like, this is, you know, we, we don't, we don't do things like that in our scene. We don't we don't sell out to to whatever corporation comes knocking or if we do, we don't try and justify it by saying that everybody does it. You know, we don't allow people to just make bad records. And and instead of telling them that, actually, I didn't like that record, you just don't say anything at all or you pretend that it's it's OK. Um, I just don't think that that's like a way to have a healthy music scene. Um, personally, sure. Um, not that I, I think that we need to be going around, you know, telling people thing, mean things to their faces or anything, but I do think there were benefits. It kept things more insular, you know, perhaps. Like, uh -huh. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes music isn't some, some bands, some music isn't meant for everybody. It's, it's meant for the privileged few or not, maybe not privileged is the right word, but the people who get it. And, and, you know, that's. I don't see why that is not something to be aspired to. Like, why isn't that, you know, something that that should be good enough, you know, it can be like, Oh, well, you never played Jimmy Fallon or you never played Saturday night live. You didn't make it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would definitely agree with you that like the, per, the, the putting the pursuit of success as a goal is not like artistically healthy. Um, although, I mean, certainly a lot of the great, one of the things I, other things I appreciate about your, your writing is your unabashed love of bands like Led Zeppelin or Van Halen. And like, they certainly weren't, they, they, they had their eye on success in a very like major way. Yeah, definitely. Um, so just to say that, like, it doesn't necessarily negate the, the value of the music. Um, but I have, I do have to say that in recent years, a few artists, have kind of like tried to go mainstream and when that doesn't work it's a bit like you said like you know selling out for no money it's like it reminds me sometimes of like the parable about like the dog with a bone in its mouth who sees its own reflection and like 
drops the bone to try to get the other bone but ends up with nothing right yeah, i mean it's very true you got to appreciate what you have um and of course you know no slam against anybody that wants to take their music further but if you're doing it you know for i just wish money could be taken out of the equation altogether you know if these if musicians didn't need to do these things to survive we wouldn't even be having these conversations for sure for sure but I mean, you know, it, it's there's so many like different angles you could take from that. But one of the things that always kind of like makes my eyebrow go up a little bit is when music musicians talk about, you know, being anti-capitalist or so on. And, and like, you know, of course, everyone's entitled to their opinions. And I more or less share those opinions, too. But like even being in a band involves like a pretty massive outlay of money. Like music, music gear is expensive. So, you know, there's not really like, I mean, I, I definitely agree that like, it would be amazing if money was not such a concern, but I always look a little sideways at like people with really nice amps, like railing against capitalism. Right. Exactly. Like I don't need some shoegaze band with like a billion effects pedals, like telling me that capitalism is, is, you know, not working for them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you, when the revolution comes, then um, we'll be able to uh, enjoy enjoy it for what it's worth, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Well, listen, uh, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to talk with me. Um, I appreciate it, and I, uh, I appreciate everything you do. I'm a fan of your writing and uh, the great work you do with Bandcamp and with your newsletter. So... Uh, I hope you keep it up and I look forward to, to hearing more from you. All right. Well, thanks so much for this interview. It was super fun. That's our show. Hope you enjoyed it. I encourage everyone to sign up for Mariana's Substack newsletter, The Weird Girls Post. As we say on the podcast, she has a lot of uh, critical opinions and uh, personal stories, but also a lot of enthusiastic recommendations for music that are pretty reliable. So go check that out. As regular listeners know... Traditionally, what is this music guests make a Spotify playlist of music we talked about on the show and their favorites. But of course, given Mariana's views on Spotify and her association with Bandcamp, I didn't think that would be appropriate. But as luck would have it, uh, just recently, via my friend Matt Collins, I found out about a new platform called Bandcamper, a playlist platform for Bandcamp, it's called. And uh, Mariana kindly made me a mix there of uh, some music we talked about on the show and her personal favorites. So go check it out. You can find that link on the homepage or on the Facebook page. If you like this show, please go uh, give us a rating or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to keep nagging you because you haven't been doing it, people. I want to keep doing this podcast and growing it so you can help. And you can also, of course, if you like the show, uh, spread the word, tell a friend. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>